to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. When we last left Agrippina the Younger, she'd just married her uncle Claudius, and he just so happened to be Rome's current emperor, which means that she is now Rome's empress. This is the fulfillment of a lifetime's worth of hopes and ambitions, a high point in a very tumultuous life. What will Agrippina do now that she's empress? What kinds of power might she be able to grab, and will she be able to hold on to it? Once again, we'll be time-traveling with my friends Dr. Rad and Dr. G of the Partial Historians podcast. So let's grab a shiny cloak, some tasty mushrooms, and your very sharpest wits. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Lucia and Carmen. My newest lady president, Brinkley. My boss ladies, Rebecca, Nuria, Eva, Bronwyn, Bethany, Annie, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. My adventuresses, Samantha, Lizzie, Kelly, Iris, Kira, Alexis, Jessica S., and Karen C. My warrior queen, Avery, and my glorious lady pharaoh, Courtney. Thanks to all of my patrons who help keep the show going and all of my listeners for spreading the word. Patrons of the show get exclusive access to bonus episodes, interviews, and lots of other goodies, including an Explorers 2021 calendar. So if you're interested in that, just hop over to my website. And now, on with the show. <laughs> For the first year of her new married life, she behaves in every way as the supportive empress. But make no mistake, she's wasting no time in solidifying her role, her place, and her ability to hold on to it. One of the first things she does is get Seneca recalled from exile. You know, that guy that her sister supposedly had an affair with? And installs him as Nero's tutor. She is in the business of not only making friends, but in having men like Seneca indebted to her. Alright then, boys. Bend the knee. This is the ancient Roman way, and it's smart. She also channels her energies into making friends with guys like Pallas, that ex-slave turned influential advisor, and a consul named Vitellius. She can't actively participate in politics, so she cultivates friends who can, just like Livia did before her. But she will push it further than Livia ever did. Here's Dr. G and Dr. Rad. If we're thinking about how is the Julio-Claudian system operating at this point? And it is becoming increasingly about palace politics. Yeah, definitely. And your relationship with keyed slaves and freedmen is really important mm. for how things unfold. Mm. So you've got to play some pretty deep politics in terms of relationship building, like how are you going to pay people? What's their price? What are they willing to do for it? Have they actually gone through with it for you? Yeah. Um, you can't always have your hand on the knife. So I think about how strategic she would have to be mm. all the time, particularly because as a woman in a patriarchal society, you're immediately on the outside. Yeah. And it doesn't, there is a point at which her blood connections into the Julia Claudians, deep as they are, are not going to be enough to get her in the door for a whole bunch of things. I think she's got to be very, she's got to be good at building relationships. 
because she needs a network that's really going to pay off for her. Yeah. And if we're looking at something like uh, the relationship with Palace mm. that's really focused on um, this key figure inside um, the court, uh, it seems like, you know, at the very least, she's got some pretty solid figures in her corner oh, who definitely. are willing to do stuff for her. I'll remind you here about those three ex-slaves turned advisors who have become so influential during Claudius's reign. One of them is a guy named Pallas. He is totally Team Agrippina. And then there's Narcissus, who is, well, definitely not. Of course, our sources make it out like she's sleeping with all of them, using her sweet feminine wiles to get her way. Over the course of her life, she'll be accused of sleeping with pretty much everyone close to her. Again, these rumors are meant to degrade her, writing her off as a wanton woman because that's much less scary than a calculating politico. Does this remind us just a bit of Cleopatra? Yes, interesting. And predictably, the rumor mill also hands us stories about her behaving badly. One of the weirdest is that she has one of her rivals for the Empress ship exiled, and then, Dio tells us, has some soldiers sent over to her house. They kill her, then bring back her head, which is so decomposed by the time it arrives that Agrippina can only identify her by opening her mouth and checking her teeth. Okay. I bring this up not because I think it's true, because come on now, but to point out how awfully similar it is to another wild rumor about a powerful woman. Remember how Fulvia supposedly asked for Cicero's head, then stabbed his tongue with a hairpin? These stories make their power seem monstrous. This, they say, is what happens when Matrone starts stepping into realms meant for men. By 50 CE, Agrippina solidified her position and her power base. Now it's time to take a step away from her role as influencer and into that of actor. For one, she pushes for Claudius to adopt her son Nero. The fact that this whole adoption flies smoothly through the Senate speaks to Agrippina's powers of persuasion. She also makes Jaws all over Rome drop when she's given the title of Augusta. She's only the third woman ever to get it, and the only wife of a still-living emperor to do so. It's not an official role, as we know, but it is a powerful one. She sits beside Claudius during his morning salutatio, positioning herself as his equal. She is now the most powerful woman in the Western world. That same year, she founds a city in the place where she was born. Colonia Agrippensis, which we call Cologne in our era, is founded as a military colony, a place where retired soldiers can go and live out their golden years. As its patron, Agrippina advocates for the soldiers who live there, making sure their settlement is at the height of Roman sophistication and that they enjoy all of its amenities. It becomes a hub of trade and art all in her name. And the soldiers obviously adore her for it. They even refer to themselves as Agrippinians. At home, she still can't sit with the Senate, but she goes ahead and does the next best thing. She sits behind a half-closed door and calls out instructions, which the Senate mostly take on board. Let's sit with that for a second. A woman shouting opinions at the all-male Senate and them actually listening. Perhaps it's because she has good ideas, or because they all want to advance themselves and know she has the power to make it happen. But here's the thing. The imperial situation seems to improve a lot after she steps onto the scene. Claudius must appreciate her ideas, too, because he does something wild with his coinage. He puts him and Agrippina both on the front, looking very much like equals. Agrippina has some of her own made, too, of course, which all show her wearing a diadem, 
essentially her very own crown. These are only minted and passed around in territories outside of Rome. I mean, let's not push it. But we can see that Agrippina is very much a political presence. For the next couple of years, Agrippina's really crushing it, a powerful empress who no longer feels the need to hide her influence or disguise her opinions. There is this instance where there's problems in Judea. Now that's nothing new, there's often problems in Judea. Um, but Claudius seemed to, yeah, he was, he was invited to weigh in on the dispute, um, and he seemed to be going one way, but then Agrippina intervenes and he ends up siding with the Jewish people against the Samaritans in this dispute. And it seems to be because Agrippina convinced him that that was the right way to go. Aggie knows best. Nero star is rising too. Hey y'all, it's Nero in the house. Wait, do I sound a lot like my uncle Caligula? Hold on to your togas because I'm so much worse. I'm gonna become infamous for things like kicking my wife to death locking people up in theaters and forcing them to listen to my music and ordering that a woman be sexually assaulted by a giraffe. But right now, I'm just a spoiled little mama's boy. She seriously doesn't have any idea what's coming. In 51, he gets his toga virilis, which as we learned with Caligula is quite a big deal. He becomes a man, stepping into the spotlight and over the line into adulthood, leaving Britannicus in his dust. In some people's eyes, as the mother of potentially the next emperor, Agrippina is the true rising star. In that same year, a guy named Caraticus is brought to Rome. He's one of the leaders of the British resistance against Roman rule. This rebel is kind of the Ned Kelly of this time period, at least in terms of being very hard to catch. If you don't happen to know this infamous Aussie outlaw, give him a Google and admire his homemade helmet. Caraticus, his wife, and kids are paraded through the streets of Rome, such is his infamy with the Roman people, and then brought in front of Claudius, who is propped up on a fancy dais. But Agrippina's there too, not just on the sidelines or on a smaller dais, but on a separate one on par with his. This is some glass ceiling shattering imagery. Yeah. She's on her dais and she's there and you're like, wait a minute, are they like co-ruling? What is this? And visually, the signifiers are all about co-rule. Absolutely. And Caractacus makes a particular remark to her as well. Absolutely. And yeah. so she is in that moment drawn into the politics as being just as significant as Claudius. For sure. Yeah. And it's incredible because you're like, okay, where are we now in terms of Roman history? How does patriarchy as the Romans understand it, which is so based on the part of familius straight down the line and the imperator at the top being that guy who's like the father of the fatherland for everybody. Yeah. How does she fit into that? And nobody can make it work with the Latin. They just can't do it. No woman has ever sat and stayed in Rome to receive a foreign visitor. The very sight would be shocking to many. And yet she does it and without anyone trying to shout her down. This brave soul takes a massive risk and becomes the closest thing Rome's ever had to a queen. She's also actively involved in the day-to-day -day running of the empire. We see her listening to public hearings, receiving delegations, and even joining her husband and the people to try to put out a massive fire. Girl is busy and dedicated to making her world a better place. And, of course, to make sure little Nero has his time in the sun. 
many ancient sources paint her actions as that of a power-hungry momager. And so what if she's personally ambitious? Every Roman matron wants her son to succeed in the public realm, and so it only makes sense that she is pushing for Nero. In these years, she does everything she can to assure his place in history. And so Claudius heaps honors on him like Augustus did for his adopted sons, giving him honorary positions that put him above all the boys around him. He gets military authority, starts overseeing legal matters, becomes a prefect, and then officially marries Claudius's daughter Octavia, all while still in his teens. But here's the thing about boys who grow up with silver spoons in their mouths. Sometimes they grow up to be, well, kind of an asshat. You know it. This is also the year that the often overflowing Fusine Lake is drained, a truly massive undertaking. One of Claudius's main dudes, Narcissus, plans the lake's going-away party, including a gigantic mock naval battle out on the water. Thousands of people go to watch. This is the party of a lifetime, and a prime moment to show off imperial power. One of the most potent ways of doing this is through fashion. Remember that Rome is a place where what you wear says a lot about you. If you're wearing a toga virilis, then you're a man and a citizen. If you're wearing a toga trimmed in purple and you aren't part of the imperial family, gods help you, because no one's going to let it slide. Agrippina knows the importance of clothing and public staging, and on this occasion she does not disappoint. She wears a glittering gold Greek short cloak called a clamis, which just so happens to be a cloak meant for men. I mean, I can kind of imagine it being a similar to a woman who wears one of those sort of military style jackets now, you know, with like, it's, it's, it's got a feminine cut, but it's got the, you know, it's the, got the epaulets, it's got the epaulets, it's got the gold <laughs> there's, buttons, there's some braiding going exactly, on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of imagine it as being something like that. But obviously, back then, it would have been even more of a statement because it's an area that women just do not go into. Yeah, so she's really pushing the boundaries in terms of what is possible to be visually imperial yes. as a woman uh, for the Julia Claudians. And I think this is part of what makes her fascinating. She's just a trailblazer. Yeah. Uh, she is pushing at the edges of what is acceptable soft power yes. for a woman to enact um, in this situation. It's a bold statement, one that may reflect the lessons her mother once instilled in her, that godly blood runs through her veins. Or maybe she is doing what women like Hatshepsut over in Egypt did long before her, dressing in men's clothes to fit into a man's world and minimize her womanhood to make it harder for critics to question her. She will not give them reason to poke at her power on the grounds of her soft, feminine sex. Let's bask in this moment, Agrippina almost co-ruling with her husband, wearing gold cloaks, defying anyone who would stop her. Because from here, things are going to start to take a dark turn. In 54 CE, two people are going to die. One is Lepida, Agrippina's one-time sister-in-law. The other is the emperor himself. Agrippina will be blamed for both of them. As far as Lepida goes, as Dr. Rad and Dr. G say... So there's no way for Agrippina to get this woman out of her life. Um, there's That's true. There's, there's family. Yeah, yeah. Um, the blood. The blood is there. The yeah. blood is there. Yeah. And apparently, according to Tacitus, uh, Lepida is seeking some sort of influence over Nero. Mm. And Nero's, what, 16, 17 at this point in time? Sure. He's quite young. And... 
She seems to have had his ear. Yes. And this seems to be a problem. Lepida is accused of doing some secret sorcery against Agrippina, then is put on trial, with young Nero testifying against his aunt and put to death. Pretty harsh. Is this Agrippina getting rid of a much-loathed rival? Is it to break the hold the woman might have on her son? Apparently, Lepida's death wakes Claudius up from his stupor because he realizes he's let his wife take on way more power than she should, and also that she might be planning to hurt his son, Britannicus. He makes plans to give his now-teenage son his toga virilis right quick and peel back some of the honors he's given Agrippina and his stepchild. Perhaps he and Aggie have a falling out over it. Tensions must be high, to say the least. Smelling blood in the water, Agrippina haters start stepping forward and accusing her of all sorts of things. If she lets this ball get rolling, Britannicus will be put ahead of her son in the line of succession, and she will lose all the powers she's fought so hard for. She's seen what happens to members of the Julio-Claudian family when they fall out of favor. It's time to take some drastic measures. Imagine her, head covered, descending into a darkly lit corridor, steps light as she walks through shadow. She approaches a cell where a woman sits, awaiting judgment for her crimes. Leaning into the torchlight, she tells the woman she'll free her if she will help Agrippina concoct a special poison, one meant for the emperor himself. It has to be slow, she explains, slow enough that she won't be suspected, but effective enough that Claudius won't survive. Locusta, an infamous poisoner, agrees to her offer. Tacitus tells us that Agrippina had long decided on the crime and eagerly grasped at the opportunity thus offered. But I wonder if this is an agonized moment. She knows she's crossing a line, one she will never be able to go back over. Later, sources say, she sprinkles the concoction onto Claudius's mushrooms and waits with bated breath. Some say the poison starts to work immediately. Others say it takes much longer. Others say a doctor is called, who sticks a feather down the emperor's throat to try to induce vomiting. But that doctor, who is in on the plot, has coated that feather with poison. It's all very confusing, but however it goes down, it works, and the emperor dies. Ugh, well that's disappointing. Sorry, Claudius. From there, Aggie moves swiftly. She shuts down the palace and secretly convenes the Senate, calming them by saying that Claudius looks like he may still recover, while at the same time getting them to agree that Nero will be the next emperor if he doesn't. It helps that Claudius's will has conveniently gone missing. A suspicious piece of evidence against Agrippina, to be sure. Does she really murder her husband? We can't be sure, and it isn't a pretty image. But we know that Aggie is someone who isn't afraid to make hard choices. It's easy to imagine her, in this moment, wanting to step up herself and rule. But she knows that Rome will never let a woman do it. But her son. They will allow him to wear the purple, and through him, perhaps she will too. We get this picture of Agrippina as cold and cruelly calculating, that she plans all of this from the start. As Dr. G and Dr. Rat say, I think one of the troubling things that I find with the study of Agrippina is, and particularly, and it starts with our ancient source material, is the kind of assumption that she had some kind of really clear plan. Yeah. And 
that all of these things were kind of laid out and she was pretty systematic about it. Sure. And I think to myself, you can maybe have some like long-term plans that you would like to bring to life. Yeah. But it's very hard to know what's going to happen day to day in an imperial regime. I was say, particularly in the Julia Claudia. <laughs> like, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, I, I definitely look positively at Agrippina and I definitely think that her overall ambition was obviously for Nero to do well you know to have to have some prominence and sure like maybe maybe she thought from an early-ish stage that he could be emperor one day because of his connections and all like that wouldn't be the most insane thing to hope for but it does make sense like his julio claudian bloodline is pretty strong yeah but the idea that she's got like a calendar where she's uh, (laughs) she's like checking off the deadlines yeah yeah who's on the kill list (laughs) well i kind of imagine her being a bit gone girl like you know like on this day erase this person on this day beat self up you know like it looked like yeah. an accident I, it, it does seem sometimes in the sources like she is a bit you know systematic and i agree with you i think she has to obviously roll with the punches a lot but she might have like an overall goal soon after the palace gates open and the praetorian guard and the senate declare nero as their new emperor the crowd cheers no legions riot agrippina has helped to stage manage an almost bloodless transition She's made it possible for her son to step into this role uncontested. There's no doubt at all that she played a massive part in his ascent. I think that it was important for her to have a certain level of ruthlessness and ambition. And I think that those things are interesting characteristics because I think they were both the secret to her success, but also her weaknesses. (laughs) (laughs) Just such a double-edged sword. Exactly. I mean, her ambition, obviously, I mean, you have to say that her ambition is what got Nero into power, you know. Um, I mean, sure, there there were people who helped her along the way, and Claudius had to be complicit in that. But at the end of the day, Agrippina is the one that's setting him up for that. And she's ruthless to get there, I think, most of the time. You don't really have many tender-hearted moments with her where she, you know, spares someone who would otherwise have been a problem. Look, she seems to operate from the principle, let's kill or be killed. Yeah, which you can which kind of understand. I, I yeah. think is, you know, yeah. very much in keeping with the upbringing that she's had. Absolutely. But then, once Nero is in power, her ambition, I think, runs away with her. First, things go to plan. Nero listens to his mama, despite the fact that she is, by many accounts, a serious hoverer. While she plans Claudius's funeral, Nero goes to talk to the Senate, setting the daily password with his guards as Optimum Matrum, best mother. He clearly knows who's gotten him where he is. Essentially, at first, Nero seems to be willing to acknowledge the contribution, and this is where a certain level of interpretation comes in. You could say that Nero sees it as important to acknowledge the debt that he owes to her and to maybe use his connection to her to help, you know, solidify his position. So you could see him as using Agrippina, just that she's just a pawn, you know. I don't personally see it that way. I definitely think that he acknowledges that she had an active role in setting him up and he, he is definitely aware that she is an important part of his getting to that position and going forward, I think he sees her as an important player on his side. Several of the men she doesn't like, including that guy Narcissus, lose their jobs in the transition. She's made the high priestess of Claudius's cult. 
And as the emperor's mother, she takes it upon herself to act as something of a regent, pushing for the senate to meet at the palace so she can sit close and take notes. There's a frieze from Aphrodisias, a Roman city in what is now Turkey, that shows Agrippina actually crowning Nero with a laurel wreath, as if she's the one giving him the power. It's unlikely the family commissioned it, so it reflects how many people in the empire must see mother and son at this point. There's also the fact that she has coins minted in Rome that show her and Nero facing each other as equals. On the same side as Nero, on the obverse of the coin. This is huge. Get yeah. in it, girl! <laughs> <laughs> For a Roman woman to be in this scenario, very amazing. Yeah. Unprecedented? Unprecedented, and her title's to be in the superior position. This oh, is insane. Hello. Yeah. Get it, girl! Like, this is crazy! As Tacitus tells us, Agrippina could tolerate giving her son the empire, but not him being emperor. And to that I say, well, yeah, of course she can't. She isn't Livia, and she is tired of pretending to be her. She should be running the empire. And while her son's still young, that's exactly what she's gonna do. However, within a couple of years, I think Agrippina's involvement in the political scene and her desire to see things done her way <laughs> is leading to clashes between her and Nero and, and also probably Seneca and Boris, who are not keen to have a woman with this much influence. And she can't take a hint. Nero starts to show signs of chafing under all of her momaging. I can just picture him now, stamping his foot against the marble. Get out of my room, Mom. God! Apparently Seneca, his tutor, does too, because some of the speeches he writes for Nero about separating palace intrigue from politics sounds suspiciously like a warning. And one of the strains of the narrative in our primary source material is the suggestion that slowly these two see how she's sort of uh, taken power for herself to such a degree that they just can no longer accept uh, that they have to be on her side. Yeah. And they slowly and seem to mutually agree that they'll find a way to encourage Nero into a space where he can be the emperor in his own way, yeah. and Agrippina has to take a bit more of a backseat. Absolutely. They try to be subtle about it. It doesn't work. <laughs> and then some delegates from the Armenians and Parthians come to Rome to ask Nero for his help in settling a dispute between them. This is a tense and complex thing on a good day. Many worry that Nero won't be up for it, and even worse, that Agrippina will try to step in. Horrors! At the beginning of the meeting, all seems normal, but then Aggie enters the room and makes as if to step up on her son's dais. The Roman men present watch, horrified. It was one thing when she sat quietly on her own dais, but this? Seneca whispers fervently to Nero, and then her son puts his hand out, guiding her either to the side or out of the room entirely. And no matter what she feels in this moment, rage, horror, humiliation, she doesn't fight him. She keeps her chin up as she is ushered away, put firmly back into the place where men think she should be. But she thought her son would understand her, that he would support her. Instead, for Agrippina, this is the beginning of the end. But still, while men like Seneca indulge Nero's every wish, Agrippina continues to be the harsh parent she thinks he needs. 
when he decides to take an ex-slave mistress and lavishes her with way too much attention. Agrippina tells him to cut it out and spend some time with his actual wife. But the more she tells him what to do, the harder he clings to his mistress. It seems that mother and son are no longer on the same side. And Nero, it turns out, is no longer a boy, but fast becoming a spoiled, impetuous, and perfectly terrible man. <laughs> they try and tell her, you know, they're trying to, they try and make moves to indicate, look, this is your realm. These are your limits. Or, you know, just back off. Just back off, mom. Just back off, all right? I'm going to have my girlfriend, like, you know, I'm going to have the girlfriend that I want. You can't tell me who to sleep with. She just doesn't seem to be able to accept that things aren't going to be exactly her way. And she seems to keep aiming for greater heights for herself. So I have to think that that's part of the reason why she and Nero sort of fall apart and therefore it's kind of her undoing. His next move is to fire her main man, Pallas. This infuriates Agrippina. Tacitus describes her screaming at Nero, saying she'll side with Britannicus if he isn't careful. That's a bold move to say she'll join forces with Nero's greatest rival. He's been living what must be a fairly miserable existence at the palace, the butt of all of Nero's jokes and jabs. Given how much power she still has outside the palace, this is not an empty threat, and Nero knows it. So, just like his mother before her, he turns to Locusta to banish this threat once and for all. The story goes like this. The family is at dinner together. Everyone has an official taster at this point, so it probably feels relatively safe. Britannicus's taster sips his beverage and declares it fine. But when he burns his tongue on it, the taster adds a bit of cold water. When Britannicus takes a drink, it isn't long before he starts gasping, shaking and gagging with every breath. Nero just brushes it off, saying something like, <sighs> He's just having one of his fits again. Just ignore him. Now, where's my wine? Octavia, Nero's wife and Britannicus' sister, must watch all this in anguish, and Agrippina with horror in her heart. Her son just poisoned the boy he grew up with in front of a whole bunch of people, then just laughed and drank his wine. Her son, who she gave everything for, is a monster. A monster she helped create. Some of his advisors, like Seneca, see the ghoul behind the boyish facade and start backing away slowly. But for Agrippina, her fall is fast and fierce. Nero has her kicked out of the palace and sent to Antonia's old house on the Palatine, without any of her old guards to protect her. This is about putting her back into what he sees as her place, a woman's place, far away from politics. This woman, who two minutes ago was one of the Western world's most powerful, is now a pariah, left vulnerable to her enemies. Her head must be spinning with a whirlwind that has once again become her life. And then a couple of women who were once close with Aggie cook up a strange plot to try and take her down. One is a woman named Solana, and the other is Domitia Lepida. You'll remember her as the sister-in-law whose husband Agrippina stole and whose sister she quite recently had killed. So, not a big Agrippina fan. They get a friend of Nero's to go to the palace all upset and tell a drunk emperor that his son and the guy she's sleeping with, who just so happens to be Tiberius's great-grandson, are planning to overthrow him. Nero does not react well. When Agrippina wakes up to a knock on her door the next morning and plenty of accusations, she reacts with cold disdain and even fury. What were these women thinking doing such a thing? Tacitus tells us that she says, among other things, I wonder not that Solana, who has never born children, knows nothing of a mother's feelings. 
Parents do not change their children as lightly as a shameless woman does her paramours. Damn, Aggie. Eventually, some tenuous peace is reached between Agrippina and Nero, and she stops fighting for a public role and instead retires to a private one. We don't hear much from her again until 57 or 58, when she's accused of sleeping with a man. This time it's Seneca, which is kind of weird, given how thoroughly he's betrayed her these past few years. Though the accuser takes it further, saying that he slept with Agrippina the Elder too, and while Germanicus was still alive. This is some soap opera stuff right here. Drama aside, it seems that Agrippina is still in Rome, and though the sources are quiet about what she's doing, it's quite possible this is the moment she writes her memoir. Writing a memoir is a rather man-centric act at this time, and though it's since been lost to us, it's an incredible thing to contemplate. Especially the fact that she includes details about her son's rather traumatic birth, taking what is supposed to be a very private and feminine thing and turning it into the kind of great pride that a general might express over a battlefield victory. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm pretty impressed. There is every reason to believe she's still involved in politics too, just on the quiet. For one, because these years are pretty stable ones for Nero, and he's famous for being unpredictable and generally horrible. Also, because if she'd stayed quietly in her lane and never again tried to meddle, we wouldn't have what happens next. In 59, a now 22-year-old Nero decides it's time to silence his mother forever. We don't know why, and theories abound, but it's clear that she won't be easy to kill. Poison is out. She's been taking little sips of different poisons for years to build up her immunity. It's going to be hard to find an assassin willing to take on the task, and to do it in such a way that it won't blow back on him. But hey, says his friend Anisitus, an Agrippina hater, why don't we build a special boat that'll collapse and throw her into the water? And so, Nero hatches a strange and complex murder plan. He writes to his mother, asking that she come and celebrate a festival with him in Baie. She's pleased with the olive branch, and she says she'll go. He sends her that special boat to convey her, but she's suspicious, so she travels overland. They have a nice, long dinner together, laughing and smiling at each other over wine. Agrippina has to be wary, even suspicious, but perhaps she also feels hope in this moment. It could be that her son can still be saved, and their relationship too. Later, everyone relaxed by wine, he leads her to the boat he's prepared for her, grasping her hands and kissing her cheek, a fond farewell. She sails away across the dark waters with a few friends by her side. But Tacitus tells us that the boat was built to collapse on its occupants. When its canopy falls, or the boat cracks into pieces, or however exactly it was designed to work, one of her friends is killed instantly. Agrippina and one of her other ladies are saved from death by crushing by their couch, but then they're thrown into the water. Another boat shows up, apparently to rescue them, so Agrippina's lady cries out, and they seem to mistake her for the emperor's mother, and they promptly beat her to death with their oars. Agrippina, alone in those midnight waters, must know in this moment that her son has tried to kill her. But she doesn't give in, she doesn't panic. Instead, she swims, perhaps kicking off her heavy layers, stripping herself of the female trappings that always seem to want to keep her down. 
Yeah, either she swims or she gets a lift with some local fisherman and she goes home and she thinks, hmm, well, I guess there's something going on here, but I don't really know what to do about it yet. So she sends a message to Nero just saying that she's fine. Nero is, of course, freaking out. Just miles away, Nero paces and frets. He can't allow her to live. She has the power to ruin him. Mom has got to go. He asks if any of his troops will finish the job, and he's told they won't kill the daughter of Germanicus. So he throws down a knife and makes up a story about how it's actually his mom who tried to kill him. Then he turns to Anicetus, who he knows is loyal, and asks him to do it. He happily agrees and gathers his men. And though Agrippina has plenty of allies, no one, it seems, tries to stop him. It's dawn on March 20th, 50 CE, when they reach Agrippina's home. We can only look back and wonder what these hours waiting for them must be like for her. Whether she falls into an exhausted sleep or stays up, vigilant, waiting for the assault that she dreads and fears will come. They find her in her bedroom. Three men surround her, their intention clear. Tacitus tells us that she refuses to believe Nero sent them. If you have come to see me, take back word that I have recovered. But if you are here to do a crime, I believe nothing about my son. He has not ordered his mother's murder. Someone strikes a blow, and she knows these are her final moments. And in them, she keeps her chin up, brave even in the face of her death. And her purported final line is worthy of one of Shakespeare's history plays. She points to herself, to the place she once carried Nero inside her, and says, Smite my womb. And, sadly, they do. It's hard to say if Nero privately mourns his mother. But while Rome mourns for their lost imperial daughter, he refuses her a burial or a tomb. He perpetuates the story that his mother tried to overthrow him, then killed herself when the plot didn't work. You'd think he would also have her statues pulled down and names struck from the records, like Messalina before her. But instead, he throws a festival in her name. Maybe a part of him is sad that he's lost his mother. Or maybe he does this because the people still love her. They've always loved her. And because, no matter if you liked her or loathed her, she left a permanent and radical mark on their world. The Empire will see more influential empresses in the many years to come. But it's time for us to leave Rome proper and spend time in some of the places it tried to conquer. We'll travel with some of the women who dared to fight back against the Roman Empire, striking awe and fear into their hearts. Until next time. <laughs> Thank you to the wonderful Partial Historians for coming along with us on this ancient Roman journey. You can find their podcast on all things ancient Rome wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the Explorers, tell a friend, leave a review on your podcatcher of choice, or become a patron. You can buy lady-centric maps, timelines, and art prints from my Etsy shop. Or check out my bookshelf on bookshop.org where you can buy great books about women in history support a local bookstore, and give me a small kickback. If you want more Agrippina, I recommend Emma Southen's book on her life, which is fabulous. For show notes, transcripts, lots of images, and more, go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com. 
Come find me on Instagram or Facebook at The Explores Podcast or Twitter at The Explores Pod. Some of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Michael Levy and Kevin McLeod. Thanks as always to Mr. Explores, aka Paul Gablonski, for my theme music, logo, and help producing this episode. And thanks to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Catherine Elliott, who made such a great Aggie the Elder that I asked her back to voice her daughter. Andrew Dixon, who played Claudius. Sean from Stories of Your and Yours, who played Tacitus. And John Armstrong, who played both Gaius, aka Caligula, and Nero. Nero.